welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 21, Che from 2008. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And guys, I've got to tell you, for four and a half hours worth of movies, the fact that I have one page of notes is, I don't know, troubling? <laughs> I have two pages. I don't know if that makes any difference. <laughs> I have I have like my usual amount for the first part. And then for J part two, I've got like half a page. I was talking to Mike in the green room. I didn't really want to talk too much about this. I was trying to think of like how to describe this movie and i think it's an example of a movie that's like one of the movies that's of the strongest in this category where it's like really well done and i have absolutely no interest in ever like seeing it again or thinking about it again (laughs) it's not your typical biopic i'll give it that we'll get into how the story's told and how different part one is from part two and their similarities and all that but i also feel like this is like more of um it felt almost more like a docudrama at times and joey i think you mentioned to me at one point like you kind of wish maybe this was just a documentary or that soderbergh had made more documentaries and i i almost agree with you on that point i feel like and i don't mean to cut off tobin from his initial impressions but i feel like this is the kind of movie where you're supposed to be entertained on some level, but also, like, learn on some level. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is sort of a history of Cuba and Bolivia and Mexico, and this is Ernesto Guevara, and all like all this different stuff. And I'm like, well, like, my brain doesn't learn from this kind of movie. I wish it was just, like, a straight-up documentary. And it's disappointing to me that the only documentaries that we're going to have, really, in Soderbergh's career are the Spalding Gray ones. Because I really feel like if he cared about it... If he wanted to do, like, a documentary, I think he would really kill it. Like, I think he would be great at it. I guess, considering he does, I don't know, literally every other kind of movie, I guess he just has no interest in doing a documentary. I don't know. Yeah, you know, as soon as we make a guess about what he does or doesn't like to do, he'll prove us wrong. So who knows what what's, you know, what's in our future. But this movie is clearly not interested in teaching you about Che. Like, if you don't know, and I... I've never seen this movie before. And I feel like if you don't know who these historical figures are that he's surrounding himself with or that he's surrounded by, then the movie doesn't give you that context, right? Like, Not at you know, all. You, you, you come into it, you probably know Fidel Castro and you probably know Raul as his brother. And that that's about, about as far as I knew. I mean, I, I don't have a deep knowledge base about Che beyond the fact that he's on a bunch of t-shirts and that he was a revolutionary. You know, like that's that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of as much as I knew coming in. The, like the movie tells you really early, I think, that it's not going to explain anything to you, that it's just sort of jumping into events. But then what he does is he jumbles time, right? He jumbles time and film stock and it's almost like kind of yeah. kaleidoscopic, right? Like a person looking back on their life in some way. And as we'll as we'll talk about the two when they broke it into two movies, Che Part One, Che Part Two, they are very different and uh, in some ways but neither one of them gives you any kind of traditional narrative history of these characters and, and what they're doing. And in some ways, that I found that kind of exciting. Like you're you're just a lot. You're thrown in. You know, like I appreciate not not having my intelligence insulted, but I don't know that it makes for a very compelling, yeah, compelling, enjoyable movie watching experience. If you're not sometimes sometimes it feels a little bit like if you don't know these characters, then you're kind of dumb. The movie's telling you you're maybe a little, not dumb, but you're uninformed, right? Like the movie's kind of saying, get informed so you understand the movie. And uh, sometimes that works. And I felt a little, a little bit out of it in this one. 
especially I think toward the end of the second one where like everybody not only has a name but also a nickname and then like Che isn't even going by Che he's going by Ramon I'm like I already don't know who anybody is <laughs> why are you like adding names on names like I really have no idea who anybody is like I know who Benicio Del Toro is and I know who Damien Bashir is and I know who Matt Damon is hi Matt Damon in part yeah, two yeah. Other than that, I have no idea who any of these people are, real or fiction, like actors or characters, or based on real people or whatever. Why does this feel like homework? I recognized Lou Diamond Phillips in there in part yes, two at one yes. point also, so I felt like I earned points for that. Um, <laughs> but I agree with you totally. Like The first movie kept my attention and kept me interested because of the time jumps. You know, he goes from meeting Castro and then going to Cuba and like becoming gorillas. And then they sort of flash forward to him speaking in the United Nations and New York City and being interviewed for television. And that helps me jumping back and forth in time to stay entertained and it keeps my attention. And and I'm with this movie and I actually enjoyed the first one very much. But neither of these feel very much like your typical American film, like the structure-wise and and anything like that, and and the fact that they're 100% in a foreign language. I mean, it it feels like a film made by a foreign filmmaker. I'm I'm actually surprised at times that this is Steven Soderbergh uh, making this movie. I mean, I know it's him because he's got the stamina to pull this off, and I I see some, like, you know, (laughs) what he can do with the camera and this and that and everything, but... Mm It doesn't feel like a Steven Soderbergh movie at a lot of times also. It's not like the Johnny Cash movie where like, you're going to learn everything about his entire life and anything. You need to sort of come a little more prepared. I wasn't more prepared, um, but this was my second viewing. And I will say, though, I might not have learned like a lot about Che per se, but I feel like I understand why people... Like, I feel like he was beloved. Maybe we'll get more into it, but I understand Che at the end of this a little better, as opposed to having no idea what he was about beforehand. Well, I like that title, Che Per Se. Can we use that (laughs) for something? that's great. I think I really actively pretty dislike biopics, because I feel like too often they try to cover too much time, and even if it's like, you know, closer to three hours than two or whatever, it's hard to fit a life, especially someone important enough who did enough to warrant a biopic into that time frame. That's why I think movies like, recently I can think of like Selma, Mm -hmm. which is about a single event, work better. I mean, it's not really a biopic, but it kind of sort of is in a way. I think that works better because you can cover a single event, whether it's like a week or whatever, in a movie. Here, it's close to that, but in the second one, it's what, like, over a year, right? It's a single event. I mean, the event is a revolution, or, you know, an attempt at a revolution. But, like, it's so all-encompassing. Like, it's so widespread and so long in duration that it's, like, it's one event, but it's almost like a mini-series. I mean, right right now, as we're recording this, Ken Burns' Vietnam just started, and, like, I feel like this revolution could warrant an 18-hour miniseries instead of, like, a two-hour and 14-minute movie. Like, it feels like, again, sort of, like, there's so much to cover, but also at the same time, like, kind of not? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Do either of you guys know the movie Carlos? I guess it was 2010. Carlos the Jackal? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, Olivia S.A.S. who recently made Personal Shopper, this French filmmaker. Oh, Oh, yeah. I love that. He made a, it was originally made for French television, I think, a miniseries about Carlos the Jackal, which played here as a five-hour movie. And he's a filmmaker who has in the past, there's a film of his called Irma Vep, which is even more kind of experimental in places than this movie. But, and, and so he takes 
takes a, a somewhat similar sort of tack on, you know, exploring the sort of rise and fall of an infamous, in that case, in the Carlos Jackal case, an infamous terrorist, uh, and not revolutionary necessarily, I guess, depending on your point of view. But he sort of takes a sprawling, vaguely experimental look at his life. It's I think it's much more successful as a film. It does give you more context. And it feels like the scenes play a little bit more as drama and a little less as kind of docudrama, if that makes sense. I can track him a little bit better. And yet, in my mind, that felt like what this was trying to do. And and I don't know if that's fair to what Soderbergh was had set out to do. But and Edgar Ramirez, who plays the main character in that, is in this as one of the revolutionaries in part one. It's an interesting connection to make. But if you haven't seen Carlos, there's a Criterion edition of it, and I would urge you to, to check it out if you're at all sort of interested in a non-biopic biopic in the way that this is. Just mentioning quickly Criterion, like I bought the Criterion Blu-ray for this, which is one of the thicker ones because it's the two discs. And unlike a lot of the other Soderbergh movies that I don't really like, I'm not ashamed to have this on my shelf because I think it's like a beautiful movie. It's a really nice package. It's not like the good German, which I can't wait to get rid of. You know what I mean? I appreciate this movie and I'm not against watching it again, but it was so daunting. And I realized that in our collective vow, especially me and Mike, to just watch less bad things and watch, you know, more good things, really. The amount of podcasts that we do, we like even if we don't watch stuff like that on our own time, there is no way that I would ever watch Che. Like I would never watch this movie just by choice, I don't think. <laughs> so I think that just like staring at this four and a half hours of movie, I'm like, oh God. And I had to spread it out like it was like Saturday and a little bit of Saturday night and like Sunday morning. I was just like, I just got to get through this. See, I, I don't know if I did the right thing. Whereas I sat down, I watched it all in one day. I had took an hour and a half or two hour break in between to have lunch. And then I sat down and did it. But I almost wonder if that led to some kind of fatigue on my half, because I just feel like part two is is too long like it's too much of the same unless that is the point you know is that like he was out there i lost that in the too jungle yeah. of bolivia like for slog, a year it's a slog for him too yeah, yeah but i mean like the thing i did like about part two was uh the title cards of the day number and it's like if you're gonna do that then you can skip a couple extra days i mean i almost wanted at the end <laughs> of this to be just a three and a half hour one part movie where everything is just combined together somehow in some way. If we get like a Soderbergh special cut, maybe I'll write to him and see if he's up for the task or if he'll let me do it. Knowing him, he's probably already done it. It's like on his website for us to watch. So, I mean, I just think from like an entertainment value aspect, it's just too long. You know, Apollo 13, I could have an extra hour of that movie and we could go more into those astronauts' backstories. You know, let's take an extra hour before they launch. Um, But that's multiple people. And, you know, I wish we just had more interaction with, like, Castro because that guy's great. Whoever's playing him is killing it. And again, maybe that's the point, is that he wasn't having these deep personal relationships with the leaders and he was more down in the dirt with the peasants and stuff but i also don't feel him and us growing any closer to them either we get a lot of trekking through the forest and it's done really well but i don't feel like that that like deep sort of like emotional connection you know what i was reminded of watching this movie mike i think it's a perfect parallel for a lot of reasons nymphomaniac (laughs) okay yeah Mm -hmm. because that's another really long movie that was split into two parts for easier digestion that we had to cover for a podcast. But I think I'd rather rewatch that than this, like pretty readily too. It covers way more 
of that person's life, even though it's a fictional person, we're, we're covering her life from like a child to like a, an adult. And Che right. it, it only lives to be about 39, 40. So it, it's even stranger that his biopic is longer for having lived sort of a short life. And I also think that Nymphomaniac works better because it's so broken down into chapters, which I think, like you were saying, you know, the reason that part two is as not like bearable is the wrong word, but like sort of bearable is that you have those day title cards. You say like, oh, okay, now we're six months later or whatever. Uh, I also want to point out that you know that someone's going to die in a biopic when the day card also has a specific date on it, like both in this movie and also an American Sniper. Like, I didn't know that the American Sniper, Chris Kyle, died, but when they put a card on, then this is, I guess it's a spoiler, but like it happened in real life, so I don't know, you can't spoil real life. But when they put the date on screen, I was like, oh, he's about to die. And like, I didn't know that, but like, why else would you call attention to a specific date like they do in this movie or like they do in that movie unless someone was going to die? Now, let me let me play devil's advocate just for a little bit on these two issues, the length and that and those title cards. And, and I don't know that I fully believe it, but let me try. I think there is something to the cumulative power of this film. There's something about the, the you know, it's going and it's going and you're watching it and it's there's various styles he's using to shoot and the film stocks he's using. It's all disor- kind of vaguely disorienting and, and a little dizzying. But somehow, for me anyway, it had kind of a cumulative power. Like two hours into this four and a half hour thing, I really was kind of because I, I didn't know what happened to him later in his life. And I was, I, I assumed he didn't live to be an old man because I think we would have heard of him more recently, right? So, you know, I sense that it's not going to end well, but I'm kind of with it at that point. And I'm, you know, there's a sequence at the end of, a long sequence at the end of the first movie where they're, is it Santa Clara they're taking? They're sort of taking over the the final push of the revolution in Cuba. And I thought there was some really powerful stuff. I was, I was clicked into the movie at that point as much as I was in the whole thing. Thing. It seemed to be combining the sort of no pun intended guerrilla style filmmaking with the Ba-dum. I know I know with the beautiful imagery with the sort of these life and death stakes and by then I knew who some of the characters were and you know it's hard for them but it's going well and they're breaking through that church to get into the wherever they're trying to get to and you know I don't fully understand everything that's going on but I don't think I need to at that point the stakes are very clear and then the second movie everything that went right in the first is going wrong in the second you know they're all these scenes where they were achieving some sort of surprising military victories that were easier than they thought in the first movie and none of them work out in the second movie and Che who was sort of even though he had his asthma and that was sort of slowing him down in the first movie is really increasingly physically you know disabled by his by illness and and eventually gunshots and things in the second movie and you just feel like this this idea that like revolution is a young man's game. He, he didn't have the youth and vitality that he had in the first revolution and should have stopped. Like, it's very clear he was, he was, he should have, you know, in terms of his own life, preserving his own life. So there's, there's that. The other thing I wanted to say, adding into that, these, the title cards and the, um, I think we are meant to feel that drum beat, that noose tightening at the end. Like, he is clearly not going to make it out of this movie. And when they put the date up, you're like, oh God, I know this is the date, but I don't know how. I don't know exactly where this bullet's going to come from, but I know it's going to come from somewhere. And I think so Soderbergh smartly knows that he's not making a movie that if you Google Che, you can find out how he died. So you're not going to be surprised that he's going to die. So in this case, it's like, oh, that's like the tombstone marker. And you're like, now the death is right around the corner. And I thought I found that kind of kind of effective. What was surprising, I think, about his death is that we go into first person point of view for the first time, I think, all movie. Right. Like, I was just like, why is this happening? It was interesting, but I don't know the why behind it. 
Yeah, maybe it was just to gain, you know, another perspective. I'm not sure. We're kind of in Che's head for four and a half hours, but we're also kind of not. Right, we're observing him more, right? It's more observational. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot here to digest, and I'm always with it, you know, as as long as I feel like it gets at times. Like, I'm never saying this is a bad or poorly made film. It's just my personal mm-hmm. sort of feelings of it at that time. Uh, I'm sure if I just went back and watched part two on its own, I'd probably have, like, better feelings about it or better things to say. But one thing that did sort of strike me about it that I did enjoy that I started getting into is sort of, uh, I'm going to mention two movies quickly that feel similar at times. One, because it's in Bolivia, is The Lost City of Z. Oh, yeah. And it's just that idea of man trying to, like, tackle the jungle and feel like we'll hide out in nature and make it our home. It's like, no, the jungle is always going to get you in the end some way or the other. So at one point in part two, I just started watching it as like a jungle movie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like these explorers trying to find their way home. And then that sort of reminded me of like Valhalla Rising, finding your way home. Uh, and then the other movie I really struck a chord with was Fitzcarraldo by Herzog, <laughs> you know, where basically Klaus Kinski trying to push a boat over a mountain for two and a half hours. Uh, and just like the idea of a man with this impossible task and maybe even sort of like a hint of madness has gotten to him at that right, point, right. you know? So I started finding like relations to other things that I started picking out of here thematically, I feel were sort of connected that did keep me engaged. But again, that's like because I've seen those movies, they came to mind and, you know, not everybody's, you know, I don't think it's going to trigger that with everybody either. So I found a way to turn it more enjoyable for myself. That's such a great way to look at it, the sort of person in the jungle and the, and the madness that ensues, right? The apocalypse now of it. And I think that's really a really sm- sort of smart way to look at it. And the movie, you know, since it doesn't come to you and deliver Che's life, it, it asks you to come to it and sort of build the connections on your own and sort of do outside research. And I wonder if maybe, I don't know that I have the, the time right now in my life to do it, but, you know, to, to read his, the, the book it was based on or the autobiography or whatever, you know, his, his writings that the movie movie says it was based on and sort of educate oneself about Che and his life in this time if it wouldn't resonate in an even deeper way. Like he's going to hug somebody and say, hey, Ronaldo. And you're like, oh, gosh, that's Ronaldo so-and-so who did such and such. And, you know, like you can kind of bring your outside knowledge to it. I think it's a movie that that asks you to do that in some ways. And if you haven't, it's as you say, it's it's a beautifully shot. It's not a, not a poorly made movie. It's just I feel so outside of it so much. I feel so sort of distant from it. You know, it's a movie I admire more than enjoy, I think. I wonder if any of that has to do with the fact that this was originally going to be a Terrence Malick movie, and then he dropped out when the funding dropped out, and then uh, Soderbergh signed on. They're, like The original screenplay was so long and they split into two, so it feels like there's like this complicated history with this particular production. And I wonder if it distances you from it because there were so many hands on it and so many different visions of it before it was actually made. I also kind of wish Terrence Malick made yeah, this. You I, know what I mean? That's be like amazing. I wish I could super see that. Super dreamy yeah. and ethereal. I would just be okay with like 20 minute sequences of Che just like staring out into the jungle <laughs> yes. because like that's what would happen. That'd be cool. Uh, plus he's made Thin Red Line. Right. So like he could, you know, interpret battle and war in a cerebral way and something that would be maybe 
more visually sort of stimulating. Like, not that this isn't, you know, beautiful to watch, but like Terrence Malick has different set of tricks up his sleeve that could sort of get inside your head a little deeper. And, you know, visual hallucinations is the way he sort of sometimes his movies become like acid trips and things at times. So, yeah, that would have been very interesting and you can see maybe like little traces of stuff like that um i did notice from time to time things just seem surreal in the jungle because of like modern convenience at time like there's one moment where they're all in the jungle and they're having tea and like the teapot and everything everything looks like so clean and perfect and like expensive and stuff just it looked kind of surreal to me i wish the movie had more of those contrasting images And also, while we're on the Terrence Malick note, and of particular interest to me and this podcast network and our new one of our newest podcast boyfriend material, apparently Benicio del Toro chose Ryan Gosling to play Benigno Benny Ramirez. And Gosling met with the real guy and learned some Spanish, but because the movie got delayed, he was forced to drop out. I would have loved to have seen Gosling in this movie. Although, if Gosling was this, that means I would have to watch it again for boyfriend material, and I'm okay without that. But aside from, you know, Lou Diamond Phillips, who you said, who apparently also, I read something that, like, he learned all this Spanish for the movie and then got on set and all of his lines had been changed. He had to learn all this, like, new Spanish instead. But, like, aside from him and Benicio and Damien Bashir, is there anybody else of, like, note on screen? Oscar Isaac plays his interpreter at when he's in New York in like oh really yeah like I didn't notice that scenes he has yeah when he's at the UN he's he's his English interpreter and then uh, oh. Julia Ormond is conducting the interview with him and she's a someone I think it's a famous interview again I don't really know this is just sort of from a little bit of googling I think it was a famous interview I don't know the the journalist that she's playing. gotcha uh, but those two were the other two that I saw or people that, that I knew. Oh, just real quick, Oscar Isaac with another Ryan Gosling connection too. The standard to the driver, so another boyfriend material. I'm just so excited to do boyfriend material because we're recording this before it started, but now we're airing it while it's going on. So anyway, while we're talking about the actors, I do want to call out by name the casting directors of this movie. I mean, they did an amazing job. This is top to bottom. I think these are great performances in a movie that you know where, where the performances really have to carry a lot since we're not being given a lot of context by the script that the, the performances have to sort of sort of lives and dies by that. And there are three listed on IMDb. There's Rodrigo Bello or Belote, who's, uh, I guess, a Bolivian casting director. Uh, and then uh, J.C. Cantu and Mary Verneu. Sorry uh, for the pronunciations if you guys are listening to this. But but I think that they deserve a round of applause because they cast it really well. And what a bear to cast. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of roles, uh, a lot of them speaking roles. People come on for a minute and do a, you know do two or three lines or have six scenes as, a, as an opposing colonel and then are gone. And they've, they've built all kinds of backstory for themselves that you that you sort you sort of understand intuitively or or uh, or you should understand intuitively. Anyway, I think they they did a remarkable job. We don't often talk about we don't talk about casting directors enough, and I think that that was a big job for this movie. And I think they did they did a nice one. This movie has characters like Twin Peaks The Return, you know? <laughs> like, we'll get a scene in a sense that they're super important, but that'll be like their only scene. But one other guy that I noticed was, uh, and I might, this might, I might have to apologize for, for this pronunciation, but uh, Joaquim de Almeida, he was in Desperado as the bad guy, the Robert Rodriguez oh, movie yes. Desperado. And he plays the Bolivian president. So I, I recognized him and I thought that he was doing a really good job in the movie too. I'm sort of, I didn't think about this while watching. I wonder if, just thinking about it now, I, I kind of wish, like, Fred Armisen was in this. Because we know that Soderbergh's entering this, like, comedic 
era of his career in terms of who he casts. And I'm just thinking of Fred Armisen as the Bolivian president, I think, on that early Parks and Rec app where they're like sister cities. Yes, yes. And so just have Fred Armisen show up, even like in a serious role. Like there's a character, well, you know, this is such an untimely reference as this airs, but like there's an actress in Mother that just shows up out of nowhere. You're like, oh, she's in this movie. But like, it's just like a straight role. Like it's not like a comedic role. You're like, oh, just to have Fred Armisen, I don't know, just make me entertain me. Like, oh, look, there's Fred Armisen. Oh, he's just like, he's just have four lines and he's just serious like okay well i thought that's what was going to be going on in part two was we were going to get a bunch of stunt casting because matt damon showed up and lou diamond phillips showed up and you know i started to actually be able to recognize faces in the second half whereas in the first half i just knew del toro but got to love the guy who played castro wait wait damien bashir you mean yeah that's who oh okay but you you've seen him and stuff oh i didn't recognize him as as castro though i mean i feel like he just vanished into the role or at least like what we know Castro to be like he totally nailed how I thought he would act you just get the sense that he was always on that way Uh, and he was so different than Che like their personalities you know they just they had the same sort of like they thought the same way but they acted and reacted so differently when even though Che was killing people and executing people it just I get the sense that he just seemed like more gentle or more of like a gentle soul or you know he was a doctor he drove cross cut before the movie starts you know he he did the motorcycle diaries like you know he he drove cross country in a motorcycle and has maybe reading that would be insightful as well like to see you know you go from being this free doctor studying and you know you have everything you want then you give all that up to go fight a revolution that just saying it i feel the weight of it a little more discussing the movie it would be interesting to for the movie to capture that, to sort of explore what makes that turn, you know, that we're, again, we're meant to bring, as I remember it, the first, maybe it's the, fir- the first movie, the part one is bookended by those sorts of conversations. And then also there's, isn't there a shot at the very, very end of the movie on him, with him on the boat on the way to Cuba? The, the movie is trying to tell us that that's such a pivotal moment. And I, again, I wish, I wish I could feel it a little more. This is where I think the Terrence Malick version would be pretty worth seeing. The, his use of, his yeah. use of that sort of floating philosophical voiceover of characters. Now, it probably wouldn't be Che who would be doing the voiceover. Like, it'd be some secondary character, you know, you'd be hearing all this stuff from. But, but it would give you, I think, access to their, their philosophy and their heart a little bit more than this, than this movie would. Um, or at least their point of view and a little less sort of docudrama. The danger with Soderbergh, it, for me, is often that he goes too cerebral, that it goes too clinical, that it's too cold. And I, I like his movies best when there's warmth in them as well. And I, I think that, um, you know, at his, for me, quote unquote, worst, that's where he where he tends. And this movie has moments of it where, where I do feel connected to the characters in a way that I think the movie wants me to. And other times, I, as I say, I just sort of feel distance from it. And I think it might be a symptom a little bit of the kind of the kind of movies that he makes, and also the the compressed time schedule they're on, right? Like they shot this movie so fast. Yeah, each half in thirty nine days. It's I think, incredible. Each. It's incredible. And yeah. under under some adverse circumstances, and he says in the making of on the on the disc, Soderbergh does in the Criterion edition. He talks about how the bond company, the the insurance company, for you know every time a, a movie is made, the there's a, a a company sort of takes that they take out insurance on the movie, and they said that they would. He says that the insurance company, the the bond company. Told Told him they would not grant the bond to any other filmmaker. They only had they like believe that Soderbergh and his team were the only ones who could pull off this movie in this schedule, Whoa. given how ambitious it was. And he was shooting on the brand on red cameras, like brand new cameras that were like, oh yeah, this was the first feature to be shot fully on a red camera. Yeah, 
they finished the camera like two weeks before. Like, so, so there's all, all that kind of stuff weighs, I think on the production, on the production as well. And if, when you, when, again, the more context that I have for this movie, the more I appreciate it. That's crazy that they basically field tested the red camera with this making this movie so like every shot you see was like let's test the low light let's test this and you know in this extreme let's see what the dynamic range is you know at this time of day that's amazing so you could just go back and watch this as from like you know a test reel of the red cam and you know every shot you see you can you can get from that camera Going back just a second to what Tobin said about, you know, the, the more context you have for this movie, the more impressive it is. I feel like that's sort of true of, like, everything he does. You know what I mean? Like, I really appreciate all these movies that Soderbergh makes, these different styles, and these different approaches, and these different circumstances or obstacles he has to overcome or whatever. I just don't always like – like, I, I feel like he's sometimes doing it, like we said this before, like he's sort of doing it just to do it. But I feel like here – like, I wonder if he had a real – passion for Che. Like, one thing that I read was that Benicio Del Toro studied about Che for seven years to prepare for this part. And I wonder, timeline-wise, Traffic was eight years before this. So, like, I wonder if they talked on set of Traffic about Che, and then Benicio went off and, like, you know, started reading about it. Like, I don't know. I'm just wondering if like, that works. I feel like this is another really impressive movie, just one that's in my sort of bottom half in terms of enjoyment, in terms of rewatching for him. Yeah, when I think about him doing biopics, I mean, I guess the only other one he really did was like Aaron Brockovich, right? Is that pretty much it right. so far? Like, and that, like we, like I think we agree, like that's the way to do a biopic is like we're not learning about everything in our life. It's like the main incident, right? It's like the incident in her life that claimed the fame or whatever got her stability and made her famous, whatever it is. But like that's all we really focused on. Maybe the issue is that what made Chase so famous just like is walking through the jungle and you know fighting and it's not like after a while it's just what more are we learning except that he did a lot of this you know what i'm saying like i'm not trying to diminish that in any way whatsoever like it's obviously like a, an impossible task i couldn't i wouldn't have lied. i'd been like one of those 14 year olds when he's like you could go if you want to be like i'm out of yeah, here yeah. <laughs> uh, i'll take my backpack and i will go sure like i'm not saying i could have done it or anything i'm just saying as a film it's just hard when you know that he can sort of bring out the life of a person through the film you know, through a situation, I just I feel like he kind of lost it there in this one. Like, I'm not sure that I know Che. Like, I, I feel for Che by the end of this, but, like, I'm not sure I know him any better. That he was a doctor. Like, I never knew that. And it's just so, like, thrown away throughout the movie. It's like, I don't know. I just feel like maybe we needed a little more before he went on his revolution so we could have maybe felt the change but I feel like he was almost at the beginning of the movie he, he was sort of the same as he was at the end of the movie because he was always so determined you know and idealistic and I never really saw him before that like I wanted to see sort of like why he decided what was he like before that made him so different I wonder if that gets to something I wonder about this movie that I hate to I'm not wishing for a longer movie because I think that this movie is too long but I wish for a movie that takes its time with some things a little more like we sort of we skip through stuff so fast, which I think in some, which is maybe why I liked that whole battle sequence at the at the end of part one, because I'm I have time to understand what's going on and appreciate it and sort of keep track of who's up and who's down and what it means to the characters and who's who's going to make it to the end of this revolution. And it's also like visually spectacular with the train derailment and stuff. Like there's some of the bigger set pieces in that 
thing, which makes it even better. Right, exactly, exactly. And I feel like, you know, if if there was a little more time, if they didn't weren't trying to cover, as you say, so much of his life or sort of cover these beats in part two of this failed revolution in Bolivia, I think it might have been interesting to sort of spend a little more time with those human moments with him and, and get some, some sense of him as a person. It's just clearly not what he was interested in, but I think I might have been more interested in it. I see, Joey, as I look at our letterbox, that we have this at the exact same place, number 13 and 14. We have different things sort of above and below it, but um, but, but, <laughs> but we ended up slotting it in the <laughs> in the exact same place. And I, I, yeah, I think I completely agree with you guys. I think it's a well-made movie. I'm glad it was made. It is more interesting uh, than some other things that we've seen and, and more engaging than some of the other things we've seen. I just, just not engaging enough for me to, I think, probably watch it again, certainly not anytime soon. I would pick up other things first. Any of those jungle movies um, that my, uh, Mike mentioned or or, or Carlos or something else, I'd, I would watch those things to sort of scratch this kind of itch before I would watch Che again. But I'm not opposed to watching it again. I think I would I would want more context for myself going in. Would you want to watch it more or less if Val Kilmer was the lead? Oh, wow. Get out. No as, way. As Che? So Benicio del Toro was always the first choice. But apparently, Alcumber <laughs> was like a distant number two, which no. is crazy to me. That's insane. That can't be real. Wow. Both entries on IMDb for part one and part two said that. So either some, either either it's a lie or someone is very committed to spreading that mistruth. I could have seen Oscar Isaacs now, you know, knowing what a yeah. terrific actor he is now. But yeah, standing in if like Benicio del Toro, you know, what like I couldn't see any way. Like this almost feels like the role he was born to play, which makes it a little all the more sort of like bittersweet that it isn't, you know, a better movie. So this movie was uh, he won Benicio won the best actor at Cannes for this. This was nominated for the Palme d'Or. I did not realize it was nominated against 21 other movies, which I didn't know that this was a thing. 22 nominees. It lost to some movie called The Class, which I don't oh, know yeah. and I didn't look up. French movie. It's great. It's really good. Yeah. So that's that. It was also screened as a four and a half hour movie over there, like in a single sitting, which it was screened in New York and L.A that way to qualify for the Oscars, which it did not win any. I don't even think it was nominated for any Oscars. And then it became this sort of like traveling road show, and then it was released to DVD and Blu-ray and stuff like that. Surprisingly, I think, based on Mike and my reaction to this, the Rotten Tomatoes score for the second one is sort of significantly higher really? than the first one. First one has 66%. Second one has fewer reviews, but it has an 80%. So I don't know, because I feel like the first one is more engaging. Like you said, Mike, I feel like it's more adventurous. I mean, maybe it's movie critics being self-deprecating and want to see the guy lose instead of seeing the guy win. I don't know, but um, it, it sort of caught me off guard. Yeah, that first movie for me, again, definitely has more of what I'm talking about as far as, like, intimacy and getting to know Che. Like, we do get the interview with the reporter, right? And we get bits and pieces through translation of what he's fighting for, you know? But he also kind of seems kind of, like, arrogant at that point because he's won the revolution, so... And we also get times, moments in the field when new recruits are coming. Like, I feel like we get more of what I want and what I was talking about out of that first movie. In the second movie, it's less events. I don't know. There's just less to get into. So I am a little surprised that it uh, has a higher rating. 
I also can't figure out how much this movie actually made because Box Office Mojo says it only made like a million and a half dollars. But then if you look on Wiki, it says it was a $58 million budget that made 41. So that seems like more of a real number to me than a million and a half. But also, I don't... That's international. As I understand it, the million and a half is domestic. Oh, because Box Office Mojo is like a million and a half and then like 300,000 worldwide. So I don't know. There's something weird somewhere, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think if they made this today, I think if they made this today, they'd make it for TV, right? You know, and you could see that. You could see Benicio doing it these days. You know, heck, you could see Soderbergh doing it, doing it these days. And I wonder how, how different it would be if they, you know, had done today this way instead of that, you know, a different experiment for a different age, I guess. That's all I got to say about Che, per se. Mike, anything else you want to say about Che? There's sort of like the one thing we haven't talked about that Soderbergh does sort of like um, sneak into his films, or not even sneak into his, but sometimes his films are about the process, filmmaking process. And you can definitely, I feel, watch this from that perspective as well. Uh, You know, making a film is like going to war and you're on the battlefield. And I mean, I could have sworn at one point there was even a take where someone turned around and said, action and like he left it in or something but I do feel like it's a parallel in that regard as well like you could watch this movie and be like you know not only was Soderbergh out there behind the camera shooting all this and orchestrating all of it but it's also like he in a way is a figurehead in the sense that Che was and that he is in charge of everything out there and they're out there exposed you know like in the elements and everything so I, I kind of like I have um, not that I mean I've had I had a lot of respect for Soderbergh prior and you know just re-watching this movie and seeing it and like it's just incredible that like he didn't decide to retire after this that this didn't break him like I feel it would have broken so many other <laughs> filmmakers yeah, yeah. Um, like Coppola like we mentioned Apocalypse Now like there's a whole documentary about how he lost his mind making that movie and this you kind of feel like Soderbergh came out the other end going like well I'm just not going to do that again you know I'll just <laughs> yeah, yeah. do stuff that uh, is more enjoyable to shoot that isn't in the jungle maybe a little funnier some more lighthearted stuff and get myself back on track so that's pretty much my my final thought on it Tobin any other you know my only last thought is that I've really wrestled with this movie is during like during it I was wrestling with it and afterwards I'm I've been wrestling with it in our conversation like I feel like maybe I would watch this again I think what I would do um, first is read some good critics on it. There, there must be some critics out there who who really champion it, who sort of are able to to uh, put it in some more perspective. I, maybe it's just such a massive thing, it's hard to sort of wrap my brain around. And you, you, we've mentioned uh, uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, uh, in terms of its casting, uh, the, the variety of roles and so people walking on and off, and you expect them to have a lot to do. But also a sense of like, it's hard to sort of judge a thing or or, or be critical about something till you can till you can hold the whole thing in your brain somehow. And I don't feel like I'm I'm holding this whole movie in my brain yet. And so maybe maybe there's needs to be some reserving of judgment. If you're at all interested, I think it is worth watching. I think it is. It does have this cumulative power. It does have these great performances in it, and and some beautiful beautiful shots. But I would urge people before they watch it to educate themselves probably both about Che the person and Che the movie. And I think that. That more context, I'm guessing, would uh, would help the the viewing experience. Because it's really not a movie you can spoil. It's just a movie that you can enrich by right. knowing literally anything, which, which none of us did. So cool, cool, good job, guys. None of us did. Right. That's a good way to that's a good way to put it. Yeah. 
Uh, so for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can see all the episodes that we've done. You can see all of the other shows on our network, including that aforementioned boyfriend material. Maybe we'll have new... I mean, we're still releasing Cage and Keanu episodes. Maybe there's a new one of those out now in February. I don't know. That'd be exciting, right? Very exciting. There could have, there actually, there could have been like six Cage movies <laughs> yeah. now in the past three months. There's at least four or five between the time we're recording this and the time it's coming out, which is really, like, it's, it's, it's in advance, but it's not far enough in advance to warrant four or five movies. But, you know, <laughs> we're going to take what we can get. So cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter, or email us anything you want to say, mailbag at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.